Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hi, welcome to episode 76. Today, joining us from the United Kingdom, we have Alexandra Musavizadeh, a partner at Tortoise Media, the, quote, slow news media company founded in 2019, where she is the director of the Tortoise Intelligence Team, which specializes in global and industry indices and data analytics. In that vein, she is the creator of the groundbreaking Global AI Index launched in December of 2019 and the recently released Responsibility 100 Index, which is a ranking of the FTSE 100 companies on their commitment to key social, environmental, and ethical objectives, inspired by the UN Sustainable Development Goals. I said FTSE there, and in the USA that means flirting with someone with your toes, but in the UK it means the Financial Times Stock Exchange. There's probably some kind of joke analogy there. That's the list of the top 100 companies on the London Stock Exchange, kind of like a bigger version of the Dow Jones. She holds a degree in economics and mathematics from the University of Copenhagen and was head of risk management at Morgan Stanley in London. She also started the Global Disinformation Index, which we'll be getting into in part two. Tortoise Media is hosting and informing a lot of important conversations about how to evaluate the role and impact of AI in the world today. And we caught up with her right after she hosted their cybersecurity summit. Let's get to talking with Alexandra Musavizde. Alexandra, welcome to the show. Well, it's lovely to be here, Peter. It's a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. You've achieved so many things. And what we want to primarily talk about here is the different indexes that you have created, which occupy a, to me, pretty unique sort of position in the ecosystem of the world economy and corporate responsibility. And that's not something that's on the career advisor's wall at a school of here is a, something that you might do when you leave school or university and start one of these things or even understand what they are or how they work. So what was it that propelled you, that drew you into that kind of work? It's a very good question. And actually, it's interesting looking back at my career and having not set out to spend it entirely on index creation and index building for corporates and for nations is where I ended up. I am an economist and mathematician is my background. I'm from Copenhagen. And I moved to New York and started my career at Moody's and their sovereign risk team covering Russia, Central Asia, Middle East, and ended up also covering Africa. And anytime you're assessing a nation, you're doing it on a lot of different parameters. Essentially, the methodology you create there is an index and that index evaluates a nation's capability and capacity 
to, you know, on debt sustainability and their ability and willingness to pay back debt. So that's how I got into thinking about how you model risk and look at risk. And essentially that is through the framework of an index. Then I went to Morgan Stanley to do the same thing. And then I have also run something called the Global Prosperity Index out of London. And when I joined Tortoise Media four years ago, it was to set up the intelligence and research unit for tortoise here in London that would build and produce indices that would provide the longitudinal studies on topics that we were very interested in. But having that index background was the reason James Harding, who is the founder of Tortoise Media, came and said, would you come and build that here? And as it happens, just as we were starting Tortoise Media, there were a couple of governments that said, you are an expert in index building. Could you think about how we would create a new index measuring national ecosystems on AI because so many countries were about four years ago surfacing with strategies on AI. It's an important topic and there was no real measuring mechanism of how you would track progress and monitor it over time. So sort of that was one of the first indices that we were asked to build. And then others, as you mentioned, have come subsequently. One is on measuring the FTSEs on their ESG. And as you know and mentioned, I've also been involved in establishing a global disinformation index. So it wasn't by design, Peter, but it has been by default, really, that I have ended up spending my career on index creation and how you use the data that's available. And now it's much more sophisticated and we can tap into what you would call unstructured data and use all kinds of techniques to gather data that you couldn't when I started my career. So actually, index creation has evolved over time, creating an ability to give us much more insight than we could 25 years ago when I started out my career. Now, I want to understand what the role of these things is in the global ecosystem, because from 100,000-foot view to a newcomer, the AI index, for instance, looks like a beauty pageant or American Idol or Britain's Got Talent kind of ranking. And there's a lot that goes into that because, as you just alluded to, there are complex factors that have to be weighed, and yet that's what you're doing. So as a result, who uses the index and what for? It is, if I may step back, just maybe one step back and looking at sort of what the purpose of an index is first, right? And you're absolutely right. These rankings get released and it's a little bit like a beauty pageant, you know, who's top and who's second and third and who's at the bottom of the index. And that gets a lot of attention. Now, the reason why I think it's good that it does get attention, it is that the purpose of the indices are, while they're not perfect because you're trying to measure many different types of nations on something that's quite complicated and you're using a sort of a one size fits all. So there will be some of the nuance that you do lose, but what you do gain is you're putting everyone on an equal footing. You're creating, some would say competition, I would rather say and use the word inspiration, because when you organize the data like this and create an index and a ranking, it sharpens people's mind on how they are performing and hopefully also creates a let's look at countries that are doing better so they can be a source of inspiration or a source of this is a model that works well in this country. Maybe it's something that would work well for us, for example. And I'll go into the details of the AI index and sort of what we're trying to achieve with that index. But for example, 
Finland has been very successful in certain aspects of the AI ecosystem and has been used as a, because they've taken the view that the entirety of its population should really be versed in AI as much as is possible. And so that has been lauded as, you know, this is something maybe we should all think about. Maybe our population should have access to online learning when it comes to AI and actually should be a requirement for all that they've taken some sort of base course in this. It doesn't work everywhere, but it's definitely a source of inspiration and it's a model that's worked well for Finland. And then you've looked at sort of the Israeli ecosystem that has a very different profile, but other areas of strength that other nations are looking at as a source of inspiration and so on and so forth. But when you're looking at trying to wrestle down into an index, something so complicated as measuring an AI and national AI ecosystem, there's a lot of thought and time that goes into what is the framework? What are we trying to get to here? And what are the right components that go into it? What are the right indicators? How do we source it? And also, how do we weight it? Are some of these indicators more important than others? And so we did gather a very, and I'm very grateful to them, advisory board on looking at drawing from academia, CTOs from big businesses, AI startups, policymakers and the like, to really get our arms around all of the different aspects that go into the ecosystem. And from there, we started out you know, with maybe 500 indicators and we kicked the tires on them. And then we ended up with 150 indicators that sit across seven pillars. And actually, the interesting thing with the AI index is that it's so difficult to measure this using what I would say normal static data points as in drawn from the World Bank and IMF and other places and UNESCO on education. We had to go to what you sort of quite creative and unusual data sources to really figure out how do we map the, you know, the talent pool the research community and the investment space and the funding that goes into this, because they don't necessarily sit on what you would say traditional statistical platforms. They sit in coding communities and online platforms and in hackathons and meetups. So we had to be quite creative in terms of what data we used. And then we had to set out to actually gather all of this data. And also a lot of considerations of data sources that are really good for maybe the US and Europe. Are they also good for Asia? And specifically, are they good on China? So we had to go to a lot of experts on the data sources themselves to work out, are we using the best sources possible? And the parallel that's coming to mind here is that there are often studies that talk about best country in the world to live, and which is obviously a lot of axes, but they look at things like standard of living, cost of living, median income, access to healthcare, education, and things like that, and try and put those all together. And we see those results from time to time because obviously it grabs attention. And perhaps we like to think that it motivates a government to do better, or at least makes them aware that the world is keeping an eye on what they're doing. Is that the kind of reaction and usefulness of the AI index? Yeah, it is something that the governments pay a lot of attention to now because it is now the largest measurement platform of AI ecosystems out there in the world. And therefore, a lot of the governments are using it to benchmark where they are. So they keep a keen eye on how they're performing on the index. And it's not just because 
you want to be high on the index. That, of course, is very nice in terms of the ability to attract investment and so on. But also AI is, as you know, Peter, it is something that is on a lot of people's radar. And it's not only because it's important to be at the forefront of innovation and it's good to be at the cutting edge of AI in and of itself, but it's also because the promise of AI is that once you've got an ecosystem that can innovate and has the capacity to innovate on AI, you also would hope that there is a capacity to adopt it because the adoption of AI is something that could lead to a step change in growth. It would impact productivity positively. It would, adopted correctly, support health systems and also efficiency gains across not only the private sector, but the public sector. So it holds all of this promise for improvement and economic growth. But what it also does is nations are competing on this when it comes to geopolitical standing. The countries that do well on AI are also countries that can lead on things like facial recognition, machine learning, but quantum compute is on a lot of governments' radar. And the importance of quantum compute is that if you are on the forefront of the ability to innovate and to actually hack and crack and commercialize quantum compute, then you're also able to impact cybersecurity. The encryption models that are in place now will be heavily impacted by what quantum compute can do down the line. But it also, quantum compute, there's sort of almost no outer edge on what we imagine that this can do. We were just having a very interesting conversation here with Demis Hassabis, who runs DeepMind, but also Kai Fuli, as you know, who was a, you know, running Google in China and CEO of a big investment platform, and sort of really thinking through what quantum compute can do. And it's this, you know, everyone agrees that it can revolutionize the way that we operate today across many, many sectors and in many, many areas. But it also has a, I wouldn't say a warfare component to it, but there is a certain sense of an arms race when it comes to this. Whoever owns the edge in these areas are going to have the edge on many things, on cyber, on growth, Mm. on disruption of industry as we know it today. So there definitely is an aspect of the race here that is geopolitical and not only great in terms of unlocking growth and so on. Thank you. And talking about the risk, uh, you pointed out the risks of quantum computing with respect to disrupting encryption protocols. And with AI, there's a lot of talk about the risk to the economic stability by automation, principally not necessarily making half the population redundant, but of accelerating the flow of capital in the wrong direction from people who are doing jobs that are easily automated to people that own the technology that automates that. Does the responsibility in the AI index, does that track that kind of inequality or the level of a government's responsibility with respect to helping prevent this divergence, this parting of the waters in population? It's a really good question. It is not directly, explicitly in the index because measuring the impact on labor markets is something that's quite hard to do. That said, it is something that we think about a lot. We discuss in our AI community around the index, and we have these monthly roundtables and summits twice a year. And the question of inequality comes up 
all the time. How is this going to impact? There's a lot of layers of AI and inequality. The first one which you touched upon is how is this going to impact the labor market? Who's going to be made redundant? And there are different theories on this. There is the question about which jobs are going to be in danger, right? And sort of if you look sort of globally, sort of the theory is that actually sort of in the in the sort of US and Europe world, it is actually it is a sort of white collar worker that is much more at risk of being impacted and less so much sort of service and blue collar workers because robotics are still sort of quite far away from being able to carry someone or care for someone. But elsewhere where robotics are being implemented from the sort of baking in in businesses that are being set up, that's where you could see the blue collar worker being impacted. So there's a sort of theory that in some parts of the world, blue collar workers will be more impacted. And in other parts of the world, white collar workers will be more impacted by this. And then there's a theory about with this change, yes, some people may be displaced, but many, many more jobs are going to be created from the use of AI. They're just going to be different in different areas. And as we know, people are talking about upskilling and the need for that. So really, the burden goes back to the government to go back to your question. Are they aware of sort of the parting of waters and the disruption that this would create? And I think the new AI strategy coming out of the UK just a week ago very much sort of has that at the top of the agenda in terms of the importance of training and upskilling and the type of skills that are needed in order to avoid that kind of disruption and create a dislodgement in society and inequality in society where people are left behind by the AI and the implementation of AI and not being able to sort of maintain a foothold in the labor market because they don't have access to the skills and training. And so that, I think, is very much on the mind here in the UK. And I think also across Europe, the question is whether it's enough on their mind and if it's on the minds of countries sort of elsewhere in the world, because there is a desire to be able to innovate and implement this because of the promise and maybe a little bit too little too late on sort of mitigating the disruptions that this will cause. I think that's absolutely a risk for sure. And then there's an inequality question that comes up just in the question of developing AI, we're sort of often not really aware of the type of labor that is used to label data and make sure that the rails that AI run on is performed by people who are often paid well below a living wage, let alone a minimum wage, in order to make this happen. And so there is now a growing awareness of that. You know, there are companies out there. There's a great company in Canada called Sama that focuses on trying to address the question of inequality when it comes to all of that lower level labor that goes into facilitating AI when it comes to labeling on in you know, facial recognition, but it's also just sort of object recognition and all that. Because if we don't have that right, we can't have autonomous vehicles. All of this will be much more glitchy and more dangerous and less capable of being rolled out in any sort of greater scheme. So it then also impacts AI adoption in societies and in the private and public sphere. And then there's also just a question of there's a diversity question in AI as well. The people who produce it, it's very male skewed. And so that's something that has to be addressed as we go. And AI is developed and implemented. We've got to be very conscious of how it's developed and does not inadvertently this skew, as you know, that 
is not in favor of diversity and minorities and of women as well. So mm. that's also something that we do not incorporate directly in the index yet. It is something we're looking at. We're looking at, we're actually just looking at a blueprint for an AI ethics index, as well as an AI regulation index, and also as an AI adoption index that will lie as parallel indices to the core global mm. AI index that we publish. And we're actually about to update that and it will be in its fourth year mm. soon. So we've got some data to look back on now, which is great. Well, that puts you at ground zero of an incredible debate at the moment, including right now in the Congress, the hearings about Facebook, for instance. And can the index, all those indexes that you were talking about, the extra ones, can they track the responsible development of AI with respect to uh, diversity, for instance, and looking at the areas of bias that you alluded to as to whether a country is fostering responsible development with less bias or is more reckless in that regard? It is, again, Peter, you ask great questions. This is an area that is almost flowing into the other index, a big index that we publish out of Tortoise, which is the Responsibility 100 Index. That is a very different index. But it looks at the FTSE 100 on all of the ESG metrics. So we look at climate, we look at good business, CEO remuneration, modern slavery and human rights, whether companies have tax havens. We look at gender pay gap, we look at ethnicity pay gaps, we look at disability reporting and so on. But actually, where the two are sort of converging is, I think that there's now a call for adding a ethics aspect to the ESG measurement, because most companies now are handling large data sets. AI is a big part of how they analyze the world that they're in, but also analyze the data that is specific to their company, whether it be a bank or a services company of any kind. So AI is a big part of what they do now, right? So a component tagged on to ESG, which is sort of ESG plus AI ethics, could be and is something we're actually looking at. We're looking at sort of ethics, AI ethics grades that we could add into our assessments of companies. And then whether it could then spill back into the AI index to look at what's the scorecard that you need to look at as a company to make sure that you've got sort of the right policies around handling of data, the right policies around if you're an AI first company and you're using AI from the get-go, is it being built without bias? Is it being built with the right sort of ethical standards? Is it something that the board is aware of? Is it used in a sort of the way that it's supposed to be used in an ethical way that follows certain standards? So I think that's next. I think that is a component we probably will look to add to our responsibility 100 index. It's a component we'll probably have in our global AI index. But to go back to your question about Facebook, it would be then one that you would then start. And I know many companies are starting to look at sort of big tech platforms and sort of an ethics grade as being discussed, if not loosely, sort of trying to wrap some metrics around that. But we'd certainly be keen to take a first stab at that from a metrics perspective, given that we are the publishers of the Global AI Index. Mm. And wow, there's so many things intersecting here. And I'll just remind our listeners that we actually had Charles Radcliffe of Ethics Grade on an earlier show, episodes 57 and 58, if you want to listen to what he's doing about that. 
And I can see in Facebook, it seems like all of these things are intersecting at once. Disinformation, ESG, and AI, they're all on display right now in Washington. But I would like to, before we leave behind the issue about economic inequality, to ask what your thoughts are about how we could direct the flow of capital so that it doesn't end up in one place. Because every time some Silicon Valley company disrupts an industry, then if they're successful, you get this enormous amount of capital going into the pockets of the investors and the people who own the company. And it's coming out of somewhere else. But at that point in the American economic structure, it's already too late to do anything about it. Bill Gates has talked about a robot tax. I have yet to see any details of something that looked doable in that. But do you have thoughts? I realize this is a little outside the topic of the index, but this is the sort of thing that I'd be interested in your thoughts on how that capital flow might be made better for the people that it's currently coming away from. I mean, in Europe, we're certainly pushing for taxations of the big tech platforms. As you know, Margrethe Vestager in Brussels is leading on that effort. And the ethos there is exactly what you're alluding to. There's the, the redistribution of the gains that are held on, on few tech platforms and how we get to a point where we sort of can redistribute some of those gains so they actually can sort of flow back out into society and support some of the issues that they create, frankly. But also it is a very big pool of untaxed resource that in the UK and in Europe, certainly the view is that that needs to be rebalanced, if you will. And a lot of different proposals are coming out from here in terms of how you could tax in a way that is not too burdensome, but creates some sense of fairness. And I don't know how familiar you are with sort of what's coming out from Europe, but there's the idea that sort of on average, there should be at least reachings from what is essentially a 0% tax of the tech platforms to something that's more like sort of a 10 to 15% taxation of tech platforms to begin with. And then we sort of start from there. But I think even that is going to be quite hard to implement, but it's definitely on the horizon. So that's on the taxation side, right? And the redistribution of the wealth after it's being created. And in terms of sort of, that's the outcome or output, right? But you were also asking a question about, is there something to be done before that happens? And in order to avoid that, it's the sort of clustering and very few companies. And that's where sort of regulation comes in. And there's a question of what role should regulation play? So that right now, the conversation around regulation is, what do you do when you get to a point where you're so big as the tech platforms are today? And how do you view that in the context of taxation, but also in terms of competition? But maybe there's also a role for regulation to play in terms of encouraging a distribution of funding that goes in and sort of maybe how to better redirect that so it's more dispersed on not just the sort of few that clusters that seem to be very successful, but maybe we could do that and spread that a bit more evenly, not just sort of within countries, but also across. So there are funds here set aside in Europe for AI, innovation and tech. And one of those, the things that they're trying to do is actually make sure that it is dispersed around and across Europe to make sure that surfaces maybe also some diversity in thought, some things get oxygen that might not otherwise have got it because the venture capitalists tend to sort of see things in a certain way. And these European funds are 
maybe going to be a bit more risk-taking and a bit more interested in sort of trying to get out to the sort of the corners of the region, which I think is a very interesting take. Mariana Matsukatu obviously talks a lot about this and the role of a European body, but also of governments and what role they should play. And I think that's an important point in this context is that private capital behaves in a certain way, as it should and as it does, but is not taking the risks that lead to breakthroughs and innovation that we've seen come from from, as you know, decades ago, where the US government and the UK took some big risks. And that led to a lot of the technology that we use today. And I think that has decreased in recent times. And I think Mariana Matsukato's point is, we need to probably get back to that mission-focused funding by governments to say, let's take some risk, let's put some big money against things that may or may not yield an outcome. But I think it's worth trying. And that's the end of the first part of the interview. I think the first takeaway for me was how this hints at the extent of the scaffolding you need around AI to integrate it into its place in our world. I mean, it comes out of a research department or university somewhere, and all they're concerned with is making it work and do something new. Then, as it gets used more in critical functions, you need the accountability and explainability, like we were talking about with Michael Hines last week. And then, one sign that AI is no longer just a research tool, but an essential facet of the global economy, is that people need the kind of strategic and geopolitical information that Alexandra's indexes are providing. And the fact that they exist at all tells you how big an industry AI is becoming, because it takes serious effort to curate them. And those rankings both describe and may influence billions or trillions of dollars in investment and business impact. But they're not just a list of countries from top to bottom. They're lists of many dimensions on which the indexes are measuring the impact of AI. And just looking at those dimensions in categories like talent, infrastructure, government strategy, and so on, is itself an assessment of the breadth of the impact AI is having. And then there are dozens of metrics that are combined to give scores on each of those categories, which take a lot of effort to compile. But of course, the motivation and the money is now there to do it because of how valuable that information is. And it's only going to get more active as dimensions like ethics, as we discussed, come into play. Really, what we're trying to do here is squeeze highly complicated data down to something small enough to fit in our human brains without mashing it up so much that it loses its value. In today's news, ripped from the headlines about AI, it turns out that having a robot look at you while you're playing a game against it changes both your behavior and your brainwaves. A paper published two months ago by some researchers at the Italian Institute of Technology experimented with a robot called iCub, which has kind of a baby face and robot arms, but no mouth, it's like a human version of Hello Kitty. And it was playing a game against human subjects who were festooned with EEG wires. The game was Chicken, where two simulated cars headed towards each other. And just before they would hit each other, the game would pause, and the participants were instructed to look at the robot before making their next decision. The robot would either look at them or not, according to how the experiment was going, and make a random utterance, like nice move, or, since it was Italian, Bella Mossa, which sounds a lot nicer to me. Turned out that the humans' reactions and brainwaves 
were different depending on whether the robot looked at them or not. Reminds me of other experiments that involved putting a picture of someone looking at you above a collection jar in a break room, I think it was, and that affected whether people cheated the jar or not. Next week, I'll be concluding the interview with Alexandra Musavizde when we'll be getting into the global competition between the US and China and where she sees them ending up. And then we'll talk about the Global Disinformation Index, which takes on the hot seat task of rating news sites according to their disinformation content and how they do that. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AINU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.